Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me again today Dr. Jacqueline Galvin, who, as you probably remember, is Assistant Professor of Anesthesia at the University of Illinois at Chicago and is the Fellowship Director for the Obstetric Anesthesia Fellowship there, and is back to do what will be the first in a two-part series on problems with term pregnancy. And this, of course, is in our ongoing uh, series of multiple podcast episodes on uh, topics in obstetric anesthesia. Uh, So this will be part one of problems with term pregnancy, and then we'll do a second part a little down the road. Jacqueline, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me again, Jed. All right, so let's jump in. Um, We've got a lot to cover, and I think it's all really quite high yield. So what do you think, uh, when you think about kind of problems with term pregnancy, um, where do you start in your head? What's, what's the kind of starting point you think we should, you, we should focus on? That is a great question. So obviously, people that are used to taking care of adults, we tend to focus on the maternal aspect of obstetric care. However, one important factor we can forget is the fetal care. And so I want to start with there and how that interacts with anesthesia management. And so why is fetal assessment something that an anesthesiologist should know about? Um, So the significance is that in terms of the ASA closed claim database, a large amount of neonatal injury occurs during emergent situations, for example, urgent or emergent cesarean delivery. And what contributes to neonatal injury? Sometimes it's suboptimal care during their delivery. And how does that interact with anesthesia care? So we are not fully understanding what the obstetric providers are talking about, what their terminology means, what actual urgency or in delivery indications means. We can inadvertently choose a suboptimal anesthetic technique that contributes to either maternal or fetal harm. Um, and so to sort of sort through all of that lingo and topics, how can we simplify it? So in 2009, ACOG developed new terminology to describe fetal heart tone tracings, which we'll get into next. And just uh, to, just for those out there who may not recognize the acronym, Jackie, so the yes. uh, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, right? Correct. And yes, I believe they- that's the major largest organization of obstetricians and gynecologists out there. Exactly. And when they put out bulletins or practice guidelines, oftentimes they interact with the ASA, so we're on the same page with them. Great. Um, So when we want to look at what are basically moms or babies that are going to be in trouble. So, for example, moms that have um, cyanotic heart disease, things like lupus, renal disease, diabetes, hypertensive disorders, those are potential should be red flags, people that we want to assess. Conversely, things that are acquired during pregnancy, so again, hypertensive disorders, but other things like oligohydramnios, meaning too much amniotic fluid, or the opposite, polyhydramnios, not enough amniotic fluid. 
we need to sort of be aware of these terminologies so that we can make an appropriate and timely anesthetic assessment. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to skip to um, things that we, when you walk on the labor floor, everyone, I guess, probably can visualize the mom with the two straps in the belly and the fetal hard tones going in the back in the background. So one of the surprising things about that the external fetal heart tone monitoring is that it doesn't actually correlate with any physical fetal outcomes. So their APGAR scores or umbilical artery pH or cerebral palsy. So even though we ubiquitously think of that as a monitoring tool, it doesn't actually correlate with how the baby is going to physically turn out. Um, However, that's the only thing we have right now to, that's not invasive to help the obstetricians make decisions. Now, Jackie, uh, let me ask you, is this kind of like the parachute where we're never going to have a randomized trial of whether a parachute works or not? Or is this not like that? Is it that really there is no good data for this and, and it's really just kind of fear of litigation that has us doing it? That's correct. So probably less the the first answer and more that um, there are some emerging technologies like umbilical artery dopplers and some other things that are fancy that are down the road that may help actually improve external field monitoring with outcomes. But for right now, this is what we have. And yes, the OB doctors um, need some sort of way to make delivery decisions. Okay. Um, and um, just for an example, for example, the sensitivity to detect um, fetal acidemia is very low, only 26%. So that's just one example that it's not the best monitoring tool, but this is where we're at. Okay. So, um, so the fetal heart tone tracings are categorized into one, two, or three. So one, category one, is the best most reassuring. Um, we'll talk about some characteristics in a minute. Um, category three, meaning that the baby's not doing well, probably moving towards an operative delivery of some sort, either vaginal or C-section, and certainly that involves anesthetic management. Um, things that can reasonably be done by anesthesiologists help administer oxygen, help the mom reposition to a left uterine displacement position, treat blood pressure, give fluids, give tocolytics. Um, these are things we can reasonably do during those situations. Um, and then, unfortunately, category two is that black box or gray area of 80% of the tracings where they're not that great, but it's not that bad. And so we're going to talk about what can anesthesiologists do to interact with those kind of in the middle of the row tracings to prevent maternal harm or fetal harm. That sounds great. Great. Um, so I think just to get some to cover the as you mentioned, high yield basics, right? Fetal heart rates should be between 110 and 160, ideally. When the babies, when adults get stressed, our sympathetic tone takes over. When babies get stressed, their parasympathetic tone takes over, so they manifest that as a fetal bradycardia. A baby should have good variability, meaning the heart rate goes up and down, especially with fetal movement. Um, and then, of course, there is the uh, fetal heart tone tracings in relation to maternal contractions. Um, so very quickly, I think they're reasonably testable questions, is that a early deceleration, so when the fetal heart rate dips down at the same time the contraction comes up, that's a normal pattern, and that means a sign of intact fetal uh, neurologic activity. 
when there's a late deceleration, I mean, the fetal heart tone decreases after the uterine contraction. That's generally a bad sign and uh, is a sign of utero placental insufficiency. And then there's variable um, decelerations, meaning that the heart rate of the fetus doesn't necessarily correlate with the contractions, and that classically associated with umbilical cord compression. Yeah, and you know, Jackie, one way that I was taught that I always like to remember that is that it's the same order as the baby comes out. So the first thing to come out is the head, and <laughs> yes. so that's the early. Early decelerations are from head compression, and then the next thing to come out in theory, is the cord, and so cord compression is the variable, because that's between early and late, and then the late decelerations, the last thing to come out is the placenta, and so placental insufficiency for late decelerations, and so that just always helped me kind of remember which is which. Great. I really like that. That's a good tip. Um, so, so, so now that we've covered the category of tracings, which anesthesia providers caring for laboring patients should be aware of, we covered normal tracings and signs of not normal or ominous tracings. So the question is, what are we going to do with that besides just look at it? So I have a couple of just practical tips for anesthesia management, especially during situations of non-reassuring fetal heart tones or these Category 2 tracings. So one thing I would recommend is go physically see the patient. What does their airway look like? Do you need backup area equipment? What does their back look like? Could you reasonably establish a neuraxial anesthetic rapidly? What's their IV access? I think a, a highly underrated portion of, of especially obstetric anesthesia care, oftentimes IV access is difficult to establish an emergent. So if you have a bad IV access in place, you should establish good access. And of course, scary maternal things like pulmonary hypertension. Um, I think early epidural where appropriate. So not everybody needs an epidural when they walk in the door. Um, however, if the patient, again, their tracing is deteriorating from a Category 2 to a Category 3, establishing an in-situ neuraxial is beneficial. Um, however, some tips during that, you want to avoid hypotension or swings in the maternal hemodynamics. So in this situation, unfortunately, I even I would probably not recommend a CSE during a non-reassuring fetal heart tone situation. Now that's saying a lot because for <laughs> listeners who were here for the or listened to the debate between uh, Dr. Galvin and Dr. Hofkamp, Dr. Galvin took the nearly always CSE side of the debate. So that's saying a lot. So for these patients, you would actually do just a traditional epidural. Uh, potentially, or the dural puncture epidural that we discussed, which is just puncturing the dura via CSE technique, not dosing an, an, an intrathecal uh, medication, and then titrating the epidural as an epidural. Sounds good. Um, and then last, of course, the ACOG does recommend, if it's possible, to monitor the tones before, during, and after any neuraxial placement. Um, moving on, again, I think if you have an existing neuraxial and the tracing is not looking well, I think you need an honest reassessment of your epidural catheter. Is it working well, or have you been manipulating it all day long, trying to convince yourself that it's working? I think those are situations we can get ourselves in trouble, and if it's not working, we should replace or maybe decide to put a, a new spinal in the OR if that's indicated. Okay. Um, and then lastly, I think, again, an underrated part is really communication with our OBs and our nurses. So really laying down what is their actual delivery plan, um, really emphasizing that we might need time for a neuraxial anesthetic and how can they work that into a delivery plan. Um, sometimes, and I've been in a situation where the tracing is not going well or going to the OR, sometimes there is time to throw in 
as I call it, an anesthetic. So that should probably be the most experienced provider and um, uh, be limited attempts at that. And then lastly, I think we need to be an honest of our airway assessment and make sure we have a backup airway plan should our axial fail or just not have enough time to set up. Now, Jackie, how uh, much do you expect or want your residents and fellows to be able to interpret the tracing themselves as opposed to kind of waiting for the obstetricians to tell them what they're seeing and worried about? That is a great question. Obviously, as an OB anesthesia fellowship director, I'm highly biased towards especially my fellow and my residents. I don't want them to necessarily interpret the tracing, but I expect them to talk frequently with OB providers about the tracings what their plans are, what are they worried about. That way we hopefully find ourselves not in the situation without an axial and a bad airway and don't have a, a decent plan set up. Great. So the answer is I expect them to know it. Good, good. All right, that's good. That's, uh, <laughs> okay. I think, certainly something we see enough on anesthesia in training exams and board exams that people are going to have to know it anyway so that they can get those questions right. Yes, correct. That too. <laughs> All right. Okay, um, so our next topic, um, after moving, we'll sort of staying in the, the fetal realm, is talking a little bit about preterm labor and a periviable birth. So preterm labor is before 37 weeks of gestation, and women that are, have a history of preterm labor are more likely to have a subsequent uh, preterm delivery. And periviable is generally considered between about like 24, 25 weeks or so. Obviously, there's a lot of morbidity for the baby, like respiratory distress and intraventricular hemorrhage. Um, the causes are multifactorial and, um, unfortunately, I think beyond the scope of our talk today. Um, risk factors we should look at, an intrauterine infection um, or uterine distension, such as multiple infants. Um, but, I, again, I kind of want to talk about or... Uh, yeah, discuss things that an anesthesiologist, what do we, what do we need to know? Um, so, for example, if we have a preterm delivery, again, I think we need to be aware of what's the delivery plan, if any. Are they going to stay 24 hours for steroids, or are they going to be made to the floor and possibly deliver? Um, I think we need to know the position of the fetus. So, if, if the fetus is anything other than vertex, that means if the preterm labor went into fulminant labor, we're going to the OR. If it's a head down baby, well then it, it's not sort of as, um, we have a little bit of time to make a plan. Um, again, in these really early deliveries, 24, 25 weeks, the obstetrician may elect to do a classical uterine incision, meaning up and down on the uterus, and that can confer things like more bleeding for the mom, which we, we will obviously need to interact with. And, and why would they uh, opt for that incision, Jackie, over a traditional incision? That's a great question. So the lower uterine segment is not fully developed at that particular area, which is at, at that time of gestation in the 24, 25, that periviable period. Um, so making a decision on that is um, less favorable than making an incision on the top of the uterus. Sometimes it also uh, has a, to do with the fetal position as well. Okay. And then the other thing was you mentioned, you know, do we want to know if they're going to stay for steroids? And the reasoning there, uh, tell me if I'm right, but is that giving steroids, I think most commonly betamethasone, mm -hmm. uh, in a fetus that may not yet have developed lung maturity can help develop that lung maturity if they can get, I believe it's 48 hours of steroids that they want to get in. That is correct. So if that's their plan to get steroids for 48 hours and then deliver, 
again, that just means we have more time to make a plan. If that's not part of their delivery plan, well, they might have to speed things up a little bit. Okay. Um, and so steroids are given for anyone in preterm labor between viability and where is and the cutoff? 30, sure, 34 weeks is actually the new cutoff. So okay. that was, I think, a, a more recent studies. Up to 34 weeks, they're eligible for steroids. Great. Again, that confers just better outcomes for the baby. Um, other just antenatal management things I think we should know about. Sometimes these babies get magnesium, um, and then tocolysis therapy often uh, consists of nifedipine, indomethacin, um, but that doesn't prolong the gestation indefinitely, so often they only work for a short amount of time. Then, again, we got to start thinking of delivery planning. Okay, so maybe those tocolytic agents will get you enough time for the steroids or Correct. some magnesium you mentioned, which I believe can give some neuroprotection uh, Correct. As well. Yes. Okay. Um, I think two other things that I, uh, I think want to mention in terms of how we interact with preterm labor. So we may be asked to perform um, anesthesia for surclash, um, which often consists of just a low volume spinal, ideally. Um, although general anesthesia is not the wrong answer, but that could be done. And a really aggressive monitored anesthesia care or MAC can be performed. But spinal is, is very reasonable for surclash. Um, and then lastly, I always encourage my residents and my fellow, when someone's there for preterm labor, I always ask them, what's the MPO status of the mom and what's the fetal lie? So, for example, if the mom is eating and the baby is transverse and she goes into fulminant labor, that makes my anesthesia plan a little more difficult. Um, but if, again, the baby is a, a vertex or head down position and she's a favorable airway, then it doesn't bother me as much if she's actively eating as well. So it just kind of helps you triage and anticipate problems. Great. And just to clarify for a cerclage, in case anyone doesn't know what that is, sure, it's, sorry. it's a stitch through the, um, through the cervix, is that right, to try to hold it closed? Basically, yes. And there's some other therapies that go along with it, like progesterone that can help um, mitigate the chance of going into preterm labor as well. Okay. So in terms of preventing preterm labor, the kind of uh, long-term approach, if you wanted to really try to tie someone over, would be a cerclage. Other than that, giving the tocolytic agents can buy you some time, but usually not a ton. Correct. Okay. And okay. what about uh, tocolytics? What, what are, do you want to give us a little information on? Sure. You mentioned a couple. Are there others that might be used and kind of what any potential adverse effects are? Great. So I think one, again, very testable concept is your beta-adrenergic adrenergic agonists, uh, primarily terbutaline. It's always on test questions and in terms of what are the side effects. So the side effects are pulmonary edema, um, hypotension, tachycardia, hyperglycemia, and hypokalemia, always on, on test exams. Um, as I mentioned, nifedipine is also an effective um, tocolytic. Magnesium, surprisingly, is not. So its main role, as we already discussed, is for fetal neuroprotection. Okay. Sounds good. So those are the main ones you'll see. I totally agree with you. I've seen even on my uh, MOCA questions, I've seen the, that question about terbutaline and the side yeah. effects. So that's a very common one. Um, all right. And then what about any kind of, uh, you know, you mentioned a few, but any other um, practical tips? I guess you mentioned that uh, you want to make sure you know what the management plan is. You want to know the NPO status and the fetal lie. Um, and then uh, anything else you kind of tell your residents and fellows to keep in mind? 
Sure. And I, th- I don't want to stand on my soapbox or anything, but um, sometimes the patients will get admitted to L&D for observation for preterm labor. And sometimes the thought is that we don't have to worry about that because they'll get their steroids, they'll go home or whatnot. Um, but I've been in a situation where all of a sudden their observation and then five minutes later we're going to the OR. So I think it's a very practical and reasonable thing to make sure we see the patient, do a full HMP, make sure there's nothing that would really preclude us from being able to administer a general or regional anesthetic if we had to or were called upon to. Great. So basically anyone on that labor floor, even if they're there just for observation, should be considered a patient and should be seen and evaluated so you're ready to go if you need to go. Yes. Great. What about fever, maternal fever? We hear about this a lot. How, how mm-hmm. worried should we be? What does it mean? What do you do? And how do you worry about a woman with a fever? Exactly. So I think one of the most interesting about this topic is when you talk about maternal fever and when it certainly has to be studied, what is the definition? And surprisingly, there isn't one maternal temperature that designates a fever. And often it's institution dependent. So I think ours is 38 degrees Celsius. I don't know if you know your institutional standard. Um, But there's no standard definition, which means from that aspect, it's difficult to study. However, many people think that the mechanism is um, that there is a mismatch between maternal heat production and heat dissipation. Mm -hmm. Um, It might be a shift in some thermal regulatory mechanisms. It might be related to a non-sterile inflammatory state, particularly associated with interleukin-6 or interleukin-8. Or it might actually relate to an actual infection, which during labor is often chorioamnionitis, so infection of the intrauterine cavity. Pneumonia um, is still not off the radar, and pyelonephritis. All right. So, um, you, so how? I guess the question then is, if a little bit of fever may be kind of normal anyway, mm-hmm. how do you know if it's uh, an infection you need to worry about or if it's just a normal fever? I think that's a good question, and if you are okay, um, I was going to address that question in the sepsis, uh, in a sepsis little um, snippet at the end of this discussion. Yep, that's fine. Um, we'll come back to it. Great. Sorry about that. And, but I think one, Im- one important discussion in the literature is this association between labor epidural analgesia and maternal fever. Yeah, let's talk about and that. There seems, of course, there is there definitely is an association between that, between putting in labor epidural and the mom developing a fever. Um, not necessarily, though, causation. So that is really one of the main concerns, and to address one of your questions, is that the main concern was, does putting an epidural make a mom have a fever, and does that mean she has an infection? And the, the, soft, the soft answer is not necessarily. Um, so we know there's an association, um, but the association may be really more related to the mom's request for labor epidural. So as you can imagine, a mom that's having a dysfunctional labor, a difficult time uh, with cervical dilation, the baby's not descending, labor's going on for hours and hours and hours, that's really maybe the underlying mechanism why the mom asks for an epidural and why she develops a fever later on. Right. Um, so who are these women that are most likely to have labor dystocia or dysfunctional labors? Um, so women that have um, large infants, that have any sort of cephalo uh, pelvic disproportion, um, maternal obesity, unfortunately, um, these long inductions of labor with unfavorable cervix. So that might be a clue that those are the patients that might develop uh, fevers during labor, but might also be asking for labor analgesia as well. So um, they kind of self-select into that group for, for lack of a better uh, 
description. Okay. Um, but the implications is, of course, I have the mom develop this fever, right? She goes through a whole workup, might get unnecessary antibiotics, might have an unnecessary instrumented delivery or a C-section. And of course, for the baby, it's an important uh, thing to recognize because they then might also get unnecessary antibiotics and workups and you know LPs if the mom had dealt with fever during labor. So it's an important topic, but not not very not flushed out just yet in the literature. Okay. So let's say for a minute that it is an infection. What are the infections that we tend to see in term, uh, term pregnant women, and what do we think in terms of how we work them up? Sure. Um, so one of the most common infections is chorioamnionitis, or just plain choreo. Um, as we saw, that's an infection of the uh, endometrial cavity. Um, signs, again, maybe maternal fever, um, a new onset maternal tachycardia, a new onset fetal tachycardia. Again, we're knowing that the fetal heart tone baseline characteristics come into play. Um, uterine tenderness and um, a foul-smelling amniotic fluid discharge. So the mechanism is that, especially once the mom's been ruptured for a prolonged amount of time, especially more than 12 hours, your normal um, perineal and vaginal tract flora gain access to the uterus, and then that develops as an infection. Um, important consequences of that are preterm labor, placental abruption, uterine atony, because the uterus is just sick um, and can't contract down well, which confers risk of postpartum hemorrhage, um, and unfortunately, a risk of uh, cerebral palsy. Okay, so that's not good. And that is good. <laughs> it often doesn't get to that degree, to that level of uh, drama, but um, it should. it's an important association, unfortunately. Okay, and so if we suspect choreo, then uh, obviously we're giving antibiotics. Anything else that we're doing? Um, I think especially when a mom is going for C-section, oftentimes the acidotic environment may make our local anesthetics that we give um, not effective, right? Because our local anesthetics are weak bases, and if they're protonated by the acidotic environment, they don't cross the membranes, you know, all those good things we learn in medical school. Right. So at the end of the day, they might not work. So what are things you can do? Um, so if you're if you're 2% lidocaine, you definitely need to add your bicarb with it, right, to lower the pH and make it more neutral. Um, I... Our practice here is at 100 mics of fentanyl epidural in addition to our, our local anesthetic. Um, I would also consider, again, something else that doesn't need bicarbonate like chloroprocaine. It's very concentrated, very lipophilic. Also, you may want to consider that as an alternative measure um, okay. to make sure your epidural works so that you're not going to sleep. Okay. Sounds good. So that's choreo. Yeah. Uh, what other infections do you think about? Sure. So other infections that are less common, um, pyelonephritis, but unfortunately the, the uh, um, sorry, kidneys uh, become mechanically displaced by the uterus so or being predisposed to um, kidney stones and things like this, so that may be a problem. Uh, respiratory tract infections, so for example, when H1N1 was a thing, um, there's a lot of women who were um, unfortunately had... Um, pneumonia and other things related to that. Uh, so that's really intrapartum infections. And then, of course, postpartum infections uh, are related to mainly like surgical site infections, unfortunately. Okay. Um, and so then, obviously, if an infection is getting bad enough, we may end up with a septic patient. Correct. And 
Um, to get back to your original question, I appreciate your letting me defer it till now. Of um, one of the main issues with sepsis in maternal care is that unfortunately the, like the SERS criteria don't necessarily uh, aren't applicable to pregnant patients for a number of reasons, right? We expect some degree of tachycardia, right, in moms. We expect some degree of low blood pressure. We expect, as we mentioned, a little bit of elevation of pressure. The white cells do go up during um, labor. So we can't apply those diagnostic criteria to pregnant women. So oftentimes they're not diagnosed until it's too late and now they're in sepsis. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, an area of, of interest in, in OB anesthesia um, that needs more you know, de- development and people are certainly working on that. But um, I guess our role is to be again aware of these infections, aware that the criteria for SERS don't match pregnant women and try to keep our eye out so we can help resuscitate and, and care for these patients. Okay. And similarly, even as we move to QSOFA, I would imagine the same thing would hold. You're looking at at, um, tachypnea, which, Mm -hmm. again, is pregnant you're going to have anywhere. You're looking at um, hypotension, which, again, relatively lower blood pressures anyway. And then uh, the only one that that I guess would apply would be altered mental status, which shouldn't be present, of course, just because of pregnancy. So, uh, But still, you wouldn't be able to use two out of three of the QSOFA. Yeah. Okay. I'll need to read about that after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, I, in theory, replacing Sears as the, um, uh, as the quick screen for sepsis, but still I think a lot of people are using Sears as, as, uh, as it slowly makes a transition. Regardless, I think your point holds that neither one is going to be very accurate in pregnant women at term. So what do we do instead? Um, so that is a, a great question that's difficult to answer. Um, again, I think we just need to recognize patients that may be at risk for active infection um, and not, um, I think, to be aware of change in vital signs. So if the mom's heart rate, for example, was based on his 60 and now it's 120, well, that's not normal. Um, and I think we need to be part of the care team, part of it, uh, like a perioperative team that we should not be afraid to go to such a provider and say this patient is changing blood pressure, their heart rate's up, the oxygen saturation is down. Um, maybe we should consider a pneumonia or something like that. Okay. So then I guess the question is, if we don't have a great way to differentiate between a normal, let's say, maternal fever and a fever that might be from an infection, do you still place an epidural in a woman with a fever? That's a great question. And actually, one of our timeout questions prior to placement of labor analgesia, we ask about the last time the mom had a temperature taken and what was that temperature. Um, so just to begin, there really is no um, like large studies that showed, um, I guess I'm trying to say that overall, that the risk of bacterial meningitis in association with epidural placement is extremely low. So there's that. The incidence is low. Um, we should be aware of active infections. Um, however, if, say, you catch during your timeout that, sure, the mom's last temperature was 38.5, well, then I may take a pause and say, does she have an infection? Have we treated it? And then once the appropriate treatment is on board, um, I think a, a, a neuraxial anesthetic would be okay. Um, however, if you have a, a florid, fulminant, systemic infection and you suspect sepsis, well, probably neuraxial anesthesia is not a great idea. Right. So this is really going to be kind of a judgment call, taking multiple things into account, not just the fever. Correct, yes. Okay. Um, what about in a patient with herpes? Um, sure. So just a really quick word on this, just because there's this confounding um, 
opinions in the literature that herpes has an association with reactivation if you give morphine. Um, and certainly I don't want to um, give the opinion that we would withhold morphine as an appropriate post-C-section analgesia um, option with someone who has a diagnosis of HSV. I guess you should be aware that that's out there in the literature, but because morphine is the gold standard of post-operative care for C-section, I would still administer it. But it's an interesting tidbit. Okay, good to know. Um, So maybe we should, let's move on and talk about, you know, what I think are some of the more common um, issues that we see with with term or near-term pregnancy. So uh, preeclampsia and eclampsia comes up all the time. Um, And how do you think about those? Sure. So I think and these are really dense topics, so I just want to hit the highlights. Um, one, that hypertensive disorders are still an important cause of maternal death. So it's an important thing we interact with. Um, preeclampsia, right, is new onset hypertension after 20 weeks of gestation. Before 20 weeks, that's probably chronic hypertension. And certainly um, gestational hypertension is in the latter terms of pregnancy, 35, 37 weeks without evidence of end organ damage. Um, the interesting thing about preeclampsia or new developments is that you don't need proteinuria anymore to diagnose preeclampsia, so that is important um, uh, important to recognize in its uh, diagnosis. Um, as you mentioned, it doesn't actually uh, encompass a ton of pregnancies, so the incidence is thought to be 3 to 8%. Risk factors, so previous preeclampsia, young maternal age, primiparity, um, things like lupus, antiphospholipid syndrome, um, hypertension, diabetes, and multiparity are important risk factors that, again, are always on exams, um, and that it's a, it's a very complicated immuno, immuno, immunologic and vascular process. So, Jacqueline, let me ask you, uh, interesting, yeah. if, some, if a woman develops hypertension mm-hmm. after 20 weeks, mm-hmm. is there no longer a diagnosis of gestational hypertension? Is, it's automatically preeclampsia, or how do you differentiate between gestational hypertension and preeclampsia? Sure. Gestational hypertension in its, you know, uncomplicated form doesn't really manifest until in like the 35, 37 weeks, so way later. So there's new onset hypertension that meet their blood pressure criteria, so like 140 over 90 um, or 160 over 110 for a severe range, um, then that's, and they have the other factors, so they might have dermocytopenia or renal dysfunction or um, I'm sorry, uh, pulmonary edema, signs of help, um, then that patient is probably preeclamptic. Okay, but um, if it's just just hypertension with nothing else, then we don't call it preeclampsia. Uh, yes, that's correct. Okay, but we no longer need definitively to have the proteinuria to make the diagnosis. Yes, it's still a, um, it's still a characteristic of preeclampsia, preeclampsia, but you don't need it to diagnose preeclampsia anymore. Okay, great. So... What's the, how do you think about the overview of a pathophysiology of preeclampsia? Yeah. Again, a dense topic, but um, I'll try to narrow it down to just a, a very simplistic form is that when um, the, the, embryo, embryo, the embryo and all those good things that start to form, it uh, secretes cells and cell lines that invade the maternal decidua and make spiral arteries. And spiral arteries are those big juicy arteries that feed the placenta. So the thought is that when there's a dysfunction in this formation of these cells that help develop spiral arteries, um, that that results in, um, in hypoxia of the placenta. And this hypoxia can contribute to inflammatory responses that are um, 
misaligned with um, with the placental perfusion. There's vascular remodeling that's abnormal and endothelial dysfunction. And systemically, this manifests not only at the fetal placental unit as uteroplacental insufficiency, but then unfortunately, you know, things like preeclampsia and these hypertensive uh, issues and, and organ damage associated with that. Now, so yeah, the way, you know, I've thought about it, and I guess this is a very simplistic way, but is that essentially if the placenta isn't getting sufficient normal blood flow, it basically says I need to make the mother's blood pressure go up to give me more blood. Uh, that's one theory. Um, and again, the, this topic is, is very complex, uh, complex, but there's also a thought that the mother has uh, dysfunctional endothelial, and that uh, contributes to why the placenta is, is uh, develops abnormally as well. So it's kind of like chicken or the egg. Is the placental dysfunction cause maternal dysfunction, or does maternal endothelial dysfunction cause uh, placental dysfunction? So okay. Great. it's so, probably a complex interplay between the two. Absolutely. And I'm sure we could do a, an entire podcast just on preeclampsia. I think that's a great exactly. overview. Like biomarkers and all those things. So, yeah. Right. So is there anything that women who are pregnant can do to prophylax against developing preeclampsia? Sorta. So aspirin is a newer therapy. Again, it's not effect on prostaglandins, right, which has effects on endothelial cells. So aspirin, calcium supplements, but again, that's very gray area. And then because one of the the proposed mechanism is oxidative stress, taking antioxidant supplements and those type of things. But again, that's not really hard that's not really hard and fast evidence based. So Nothing yet that definitely prevents preeclampsia in a large amount of patients. Okay. And so, I mean, is there anything, women who are at high risk, you mentioned, for example, that women with lupus or, or other um, comorbidities are at high risk. Are they currently recommended to, to take anything prophylactically? Uh, yeah, high-risk patients are recommended to take aspirin. Those patients with coexisting diseases are encouraged to keep those diseases um, you know, to get their appropriate therapies, keep their blood pressure under control, you know, don't, uh, not like excessive weight gain during pregnancy, things that would um, exacerbate the likelihood that they would um, develop preeclampsia later on, okay. especially blood pressure control. Right. All right. So what are some things we see in women who are preeclamptic? How does it manifest? Great. Um, so things we see, so I like to think of it as a top-down assessment. So we look at the top, the head. So what does their airway look like? Um, and especially if it looks bad right away, if they go through 12 hours of labor on magnesium and pitocin and this and that, it's not going to get any better. So airway. Uh, pulmonary edema is important. So I ask my residents to auscultate the lungs, look at the oxygen saturation, um, You know, make sure that that's not deteriorating. Uh, from a cardiovascular standpoint, um, you know, see hypertension, um, your SVR goes up. Uh, there could be some uh, effects on the heart, which I'll touch base on in a few minutes. Uh, in the hematologic category, thermocytopenia um, and DIC are important things to evaluate for. Of course, help, which we'll touch base on in one second again. In the renal category, proteinuria and oliguria, again, are still important manifestations. And then at the fetus level, um, decrease or compromise uh, uteroplacental blood flow. Okay. And so now you mentioned a kind of um, more, in some ways, I guess, more extreme manifestation of this, or maybe it's a different pathophysiology, but what is HELP syndrome? Sure. HELP is, um, so the acronym is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. 
Um, so it is a so if a patient has elevated pressures and this uh, spectrum of uh, dysfunction after 20 weeks, then they definitely have preeclampsia with severe features. Um, and so depending on where they're at in their labor and how the fetus looks, so is the fetus status reassuring or not, um, are they a favorable candidate for induction of labor? These patients, unfortunately, they need to be delivered. Okay, and it, do we think of HELP as, as kind of just a form of severe preeclampsia, or is it really a, a independent? HELP is a diagnostic criteria of preeclampsia with severe features. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so, so it's, it's it usually like doesn't you, exist you, on its own, I guess. What's that? It usually doesn't exist on its own. Right, you can't have HELP and not have preeclampsia. Yes. And is there something that is... Um, making the preeclampsia worse that, uh, well, I guess let me put it this way. So clearly, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but preeclampsia can uh, end in eclampsia, in eclamptic seizures. Um, Is this kind of another branch point that is a bad place to go from preeclampsia? Yes. And again, you have to interact with your obstetric providers to find out how they want to proceed from there in terms of delivery planning. Um, but one of the important things is that we don't want to panic. We don't necessarily need to jam a tube in someone's mouth just because they um, have an eclamptic seizure. So you want to do the basic things, um, support the airway, get supplemental oxygen, um, keep the patient away from uh, other hard objects or injuring themselves, making sure we have IV access, monitor vital signs, get the baby on the monitor. And, of course, we can give... Um, uh, things like midazolam, you know, to help initiate breaking the seizure. Uh, but these patients will need a magnesium bolus and some blood pressure control. Okay. And then how about help? What are we going to do uh, for patients with help? Sure. So if we can, luckily help is very rare and help rarely uh, gets to the degree where we can't offer any sort of um, labor anesthetic, which is more favorable in these patients. So if you can catch it early enough where the platelets haven't deteriorated to like, you know, 2000, um, usually we should make sure that we establish some sort of existing neuraxial. Um, if we think that the platelets are deteriorating or the, um, the hemoglobin is going down, we should look into things like type and screening blood and, um, like FFP and cryo and platelets to help transfuse if that were to arise. Now, you know, we often, when we talk about platelet levels in pregnant patients, I think a lot of our obstetric anesthesia providers will say it's not an absolute level, it's Correct. the trend. And so would you, let's say someone has help and at the moment their platelets are 100, but they have help. And so you, you know, are worried they're not going to be a hundred for long. Where do you, will you put an epidural in them or not? Yes, definitely. The platelets are a hundred and they're not spontaneously oozing from every mucous membrane. Then absolutely. Um, I, I would personally feel comfortable again, without any obvious outward signs of bleeding, maybe considering like 70, 75,000. Um, anything after that, you might want to consider something fancy like doing a thromboelastogram so you can look at the clot dynamics and if mm-hmm. they're full in addition to your clinical judgment, that might be a good option just to be reassured you won't cause an epidural hematoma. Okay. Great. So we you kind of mentioned, was there anything else you want to say about eclampsia in terms of uh, specifics? Um, no, I, I think uh, no. Okay. And so then how about anesthetic management of these patients? What do we want to keep in mind? 
Sure. So I think the, the core principles, so we want to help control hypertension. Fluid restriction is still an important part of their management to get and avoid things like pulmonary edema. Seizure prophylaxis with magnesium and have a delivery plan, especially an expedited one if the, if the mom or baby deteriorates. Um, so again, we talked about airway. So having an airway plan, backup equipment if needed. Um, in terms of the hemodynamics, a non-invasive cuff should be just fine. Um, I would only consider an arterial line if I thought things were really not going well. Um, and actually, point of care uh, transthoracic echo is really gaining traction in these patients. Um, things you might see that are dysfunctional is um, increased LV mass, diastolic dysfunction, peri pericardial fluid. Um, an important thing to keep in mind is that um, preeclamptic heart disease may have may share a spectrum of disease with uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy. Um, so these are these point of care tests might be useful. Um, just moving on, fluid management, again, usually the, the recommended uh, methodology is to go with fluid restriction unless there's something else going on. Um, and then, as we discussed, um, I would advocate for epidural in these patients um, just because the avoidance of airway and avoidance of hypertension on induction during a general anesthetic is very advantageous. All right. And why is it that we want to fluid restrict them? Um, well, if you want to get into fancy things like this glycocalyx of the endothelium, but basically this, they have decreased oncotic pressure in leaky blood vessels. So they're more likely to have the things like pulmonary edema, just peripheral edema, uh, generally speaking. So the accepted standard right now is to keep them on a, like, just fluids, like a, a KVO or, I mean, keep vein open. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so just fluid that they need and nothing and nothing extra. Okay. That's the thought. Um, I think lastly, two other things. I think you had to do general. Um, personally, I would recommend using video laryngoscopy, which again is, I think, gaining traction in obstetric patients to minimize any DL attempts um, and to prepare for a hypertensive response on induction, so not hypotension. Things that are useful to help blunt that hypertensive response, a remifentanil or a beta block or bolus like Esmolol could be useful. Okay, great. Um what about if you're going to do a spinal? Do you do any anything different there? Um, no, I don't do anything different. Um, again, the it's sort of it's very well accepted that preeclamptic, especially with the severe features, um, may have a less profound drop in blood pressure after spinal anesthesia. But you should absolutely consider it if you have um, the time to perform during any urgent procedures. Okay, and then you mentioned before, but these patients, of course, will be on magnesium. Yes, in the 2013 new guidelines um, had suggested or recommend that magnesium is maintained throughout the perioperative period, so we would have to make sure that it's still on as the anesthesia providers. So at our institution, we established that everyone on magnesium for preeclampsia has to have two IVs. So you have one IV to maintain your mag and your one free IV to do whatever, give your bolus, induce general anesthesia, however, so that you're not interfering with their magnesium regimen. Okay, that makes sense. What do you do about their blood pressure? Um, great. So the blood pressure, so the goals are to treat blood pressure within 60 minutes, um, within 30 minutes, so that's physically possible, um, especially pressures more than 160 over 110 need to be treated within these time parameters. Um, hydralazine labetalol, still first line. Um, without an IV, um, oral nifedipine. Uh, 10 milligrams should be used, and we should not wait to establish IV access and then give medication. So we should go ahead and give it. It may be just as efficacious as um, IV labetalol. And then I did just want to mention that um, 
the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative has a preeclampsia toolkit. So anyone interested in um, establishing a preeclampsia protocol at their hospital should look that up. Great. That sounds fantastic. All right. Um, so that's in terms of treating hypertension. Uh, do you worry about hypotension? <laughs> of course. Um, and I think the most common place we worry about hypotension is when the patient is laying supine. So almost all of us from like day one of residency, um, you know, learn about aortal cable compression, which I pronounce right this time. Um, and that's actually, um, in my reading about this, it's actually a phenomenon that's been described since like the 1920s. So it's a very... Uh, um, you know, well ingrained uh, concept in anesthesiologists. And so the thought is that about after 20 weeks, the gravid uterus pressures on the IVC, so the fear, fear your vena cava, um, your preload decreases, cardiac output decreases, and you get a hypotensive response, and the mom um, has some manifestations like dizziness, nausea, vomiting. There's even case reports of um, um, cardiovascular collapse. So it's an important thing to remember. Um, and so what do we do about that? And so, again, one of the first things we learn in residency is that you tilt them up 15 degrees. And actually, um, that's uh, surprisingly new evidence is coming out that that's not actually as effective as we think. Hmm. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just curious oh. to hear that. Yeah. Okay, great. So... Um, as recent as this year, in anesthesiology, a uh, article was um, published that looked at um, <clears throat> the fetal acid base status in moms that were either tilted at 15 degrees or not during elective sections. And part of their methodology um, was that they did a full dose spinal elective C-section. Um, everyone got a, a lactator ringers co-load, and they did a phenylephrine infusion to maintain maternal blood pressure. And what they found that whether the moms were 15 degrees tilted or not didn't make a difference at all in terms of how the baby came out, and um, meaning their fetal acid base status. So it didn't affect the fetal placenta unit at that micro level. Um, secondly, two MRI studies that also looked at IVC volume found that at 15 degrees of tilt, IVC volume didn't change at all. And you need almost 30 degrees to even get some increase in IVC volume, which you can imagine is sometimes not clinically feasible to tilt someone, especially our obese patients, 30 degrees. That's, that's a lot of med student lifting. Yes. Um, and uh, so this thought of left urine displacement in this 15 degrees is not necessarily clinically accurate anymore. Um, but when do we do need to be worried about um, aortal cable compression? Um, one important uh, area is during maternal cardiac arrest. Um, so we want, during that situation, obviously we want to make sure the heart is getting as much um, preload and uh, venous return as possible. So um, SOAP, which is Society of Obstetric Anesthesia, and the AHA uh, published a consensus statement, and they recommend during maternal cardiac arrest that there's an actual uh, uterine, left uterine displacement, either by somebody pushing it away, so pushing it to the, to the, um, the right of the patient, or someone physically pulling it towards them. So a separate provider just to establish left uterine displacement in uh, situations of maternal cardiac arrest. And, and so that's actually, when someone's manually doing it, they're pushing it to the right or pushing it to the left? So someone is physically pushing the uterus to the left. Okay. So right. kneeling to the side of the patient or standing or what have you and physically pushing it. And in that article, there's actually like really great pictures of, of how to do it. Okay. So that you can either do that or tilt them as much as possible, basically, um, well, to try to get the uterus off of the great vessels. 
They actually, so in that article from the Turner Cardiac Arrest, they actually don't recommend tilting because that can negatively affect the impact of chest compressions. That makes you sense. Can, your chest compressions affecting someone who's tilted is not, sometimes again, not clinically feasible. Great. So they so, recommend manual left uterine displacement. Okay, so manual so that you can still do effective chest compressions. Yes. All right. So okay. is your practice not in cardiac arrest, but in your, you know, every everyday um woman delivering, uh, do you, let's say for a C-section, do you do uh, 15 degrees still, or have you guys moved to doing more? So I, I will still say that, again, even in my own residence and our practice here, it's still very much a, a reflex that the mom gets displaced some degree of, of left tilt. Um, however, we adopted using phenylephrine infusions to maintain um, maternal pressure. So between that and making sure the mom has an adequate IV access with fluid running in, um, it's not really necessary in an otherwise healthy person to do left uterine as long as the maternal hemodynamics are being addressed and stabilized. Um, but I think if there's any, so if there's an uh, unexpected uh, fetal D cell or fetal bradycardia, um, yes, we will do left displacement or oxygen, treat blood pressure, treat hypotension, call our obstetric providers. That is still something we should do. So we shouldn't completely abandon it. Um, and then Latin, then again, just to reemphasize that point during maternal cardiac arrest, left uterine displacement as opposed to tilt is the recommended uh, treatment. Okay. Great. So another thing that comes up a lot is gastric contents and risk of aspiration with yeah. per, with patients at term. How do you approach that? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Again, this is going to be its own pro-con discussion. Um, but one of the thoughts is that right after 20 weeks of gestation or sometime in the second trimester, that either mechanical movement of the lower... Um, What's that? <laughs> sphincter at the end of your stomach? The lower esophageal <laughs> uh, sphincter, yeah. Lower esophageal sphincter uh, becomes mechanically displaced, and progesterone, which is to blame for everything, uh, confers increased risk of aspiration of gastric contents. So I agreed. What should what should we do with that? So probably for elective uh, non-obstetric procedures, so if a mom is having a lap appy at you know, 27 weeks of gestation. Sure, she probably should get um, uh, a um, aspiration prophylaxis regimen, a consistent H2 blocker, um, Reglan, and a non-particulate antacid. Um, so that is generally a, a well-accepted uh, way to treat these patients. Um, what's new in this topic, though, is that um, the ASA and, and ACOG, sorry, American Society of Anesthesiologists and ACOG, American Congress of Obstetric Gynecologists, kind of relaxing their stance a little bit on strictly being NPO during labor. So their recommendation is that low-risk patients, at low risk for going to the operating room, probably can have some small amount of, of clears, so like juice, um, Jello, you know, things that are, are clear like that. Um, and that prior to elective section, again, otherwise healthy moms can probably have some sort of clear beverage up till two hours before. Um, where it get kind of where it gets dicey is patients may have uh, risk factors for increased risk of aspiration. So you're morbidly obese patients, patients with diabetes, patients you know of difficult airways or potential difficult airway, or again, they have a high likelihood, likelihood of having an operator delivery. So again, if their, category, their fetal category status is two slash three, um, you know, they probably should be MBO, and that needs to be addressed on an individualized basis. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I remember we used to give everybody um, 
by Citra, just kind of everyone who was, uh, certainly everyone going for C-section got it, and, and sometimes yeah. anybody getting an epidural got it. Is that something you guys do? Otter, have you ever tasted by Citra? I did. We, it was kind of uh, something we all had to do, initiation <laughs> to OB anesthesia. Exactly, exactly. So I often ask my residents that um, if I don't think it's necessarily indicated, because it tastes pretty disgusting, um, not to put you know too fine a point on it. So our... Our current practice is that, again, if they're otherwise healthy, non-actively vomiting, don't have these other um, important risk factors for aspiration, we don't give it as a routine. Um, if I had someone right coming in with a significant history of GERD and they throw up every day from their pregnancy and they also have a hiatal hernia or something like that, well, then they'll probably get some bicitra. So I, I try to make it, if I'm going to give something that tastes so noxious, have a really good uh, reason behind it. Okay. So... Let's talk about a woman comes in at term, and she has already had a C-section in the past. Yeah. What do we think about, can she give birth vaginally? Uh, and if so, what, is, what does that mean? Um, great. So, the, um, so before I get into this, t- this quick topic, um, the two acronyms, so TOLAC is trial of labor after C-section, and VBAC is vaginal birth after C-section. So TOLAC means someone is trying to have a vaginal delivery after C-section, and VBAC means someone has successfully completed that. So they had a C-section, then had a vaginal delivery successfully. Okay. Um, and so those are, I think, two important acronyms that need to be put out there before we discuss this topic. So I think one of the important things you need to know is what is the previous uterine scar? And again, this is a... Um, a characteristic I expect my residents or my fellow to know. So if, as we discussed earlier in the preterm labor um, section, if it was an up and down or classical uterine incision and this lady comes in the triage and she's laboring, I know she's going right to the OR. That lady is not going to labor after a classical C-section. And that's, again, a well-accepted standard. If she's had a low transverse or fan and seal, which is that classic like bikini cut um Incision. Well, then she probably can vaginal delivery after C-section, or she can TOLAC. And the risk of rupture is actually only one percent, so it's actually fairly low. Um, so I think things that we can do to interact with this is again like a timely epidural. Do they need an epidural when they walk in the door if they have no pain? Certainly not. Um, but once they're at a reasonable once either mom wants one or they're a reasonable course in their labor, and certainly if the fetal heart tones are not doing well, then that's a good time to discuss uh, labor analgesia. Okay. And important, sorry. No, that sounds good. Okay. Uh, an important thing to know is that no matter what, if you have a regular uh, low dose or sorry, low density um, local anesthetic regimen for your labor epidurals, that will not mask signs of uterine rupture, right, which is, which is the most catastrophic uh, outcome of these type of deliveries. So often the classical description is that the mom feels like pain above and beyond um, what the epidural will cover. Um, so that should be worrisome to us. Um, a deterioration in the fetal heart tones, again, why that's important to know baseline. And then a classic sign um, is recession of the fetal parts. So meaning if the baby was at station zero, meaning they were kind of midway through the pelvis and they shoot back up to minus three, so they're way back into the pelvis, that might be a sign of uterine rupture. Okay. And so uh-huh. that obviously is a catastrophe if it happens, and we want to avoid it if possible, but it sounds like you're saying that it doesn't, you can have an epidural in place, it won't, as long as you have a reasonable block and you're not overdoing it, it's not going to block that uh, increase in pain. 
That's correct. Um, but I think it's important, especially patients that are trying to tolax or trying to have a vaginal delivery after C-section and they don't want a labor epidural, that's their prerogative. However, I think they need to know, um, like, what would be our plan in emergency should we encounter that 1% of uterine rupture. So, I think the patient needs to be well-informed, the obstetricians need to be well-informed, and then we need to have a plan in place for that. So, an airway plan, a hem- you know, hemorrhage plan, things like this. Okay. And you probably want all of your necessary personnel available to do a C-section if you need to. Uh, that's correct. So, um, again, where it becomes a little bit tricky, if, for example, you work at an institution where the OB provider, even the anesthesia provider, doesn't have to be in-house and you have one of these uh, high-risk deliveries, you know, toll act, so how do you navigate that? What are the medical legal complications? So that's something to consider when you're going out to look for a job. Okay. Uh, and what about multiple gestation? What's the difference or what do we need to think about in a woman who's pregnant with twins or more? That's great. Um, so I think we need to know a couple of things. Again, um, neuroaxial anesthesia is helpful because um, even if, for example, of twins, even if both of the fetuses are head down or vertex and they both can be delivered vaginally, there's always a chance that once the first twin is delivered, the second twin can either have a deceleration, can change its fetal position so it's not head down anymore, the uterus can um, contract down unexpectedly, and then the baby is unable to be delivered. Um, so an emergency can happen really at any time. So we need to be um, prepared for that. So and again, a, a well-working epidural is useful. Um, we need to be ready for an emergency section at any point during delivery. And we often, we always deliver these patients in the operating room. I don't know if you wanted to speak to your experience at your institution, but yeah, it's interesting. I don't do any OB anesthesia here, so I'm not it's sure. Sad. <laughs> uh, I know I miss it uh, from when I was a resident. I always liked it, but um, so I'm not sure what our practice is. But it's interesting that you do them always in the operating room. It seems to make sense in case, as you say, any difference arises that needs to be kind of dealt with quickly with twin B. Exactly. Um, and then lastly, there's always a risk of uterine atony because the uterus is greatly distended because of two fetuses. It may have trouble contracting back down. So um, again, having a plan for that. Um, you know, for example, the patient has contraindication to your second line agents. You want to make sure that's established before you head to the OR for your natany instead of at the time, like looking through your sheet, trying to find out what her allergies are. So you want to have these things that are well delineated already. That makes sense. All right, so lots of great stuff uh, to keep in mind, and this is just part one. We've got another part to come on another day. Anything you want to wrap up with, Jacqueline, in terms of part one of uh, issues with term labor? Sure. I think just my overall take-home point is um, not only having awareness of our own anesthesia plans, certainly that's important, but I think adequate communication with our obstetric providers really provides a lot of insight into what we can do to help mitigate disasters instead of add to them. Um, So really every day I've touched base with them four or five times a day, all the time. And I'm always like asking like, what are we doing? What's this patient up to? Like, how are the tones? Um, And I always try to find out more information than my residents because they should know more than me. Um, And really it makes us a better team, a better team between me and my residents, a better team between me and the OBs. And really that confers patient safety. So if I had to say one thing at the end, that's my take home point. I think it's a great point. Fantastic. Well, Jacqueline, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Look forward to having you back on soon. Yes, thanks for having me again. All right. That's it for today. Another great podcast with Dr. Jacqueline Galvin. 
If you have any comments, go to the website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave your comments so everyone can learn from your comments. You can tell us if you approach the care of term pregnant women the same way that Dr. Galvin laid out, or if you have anything different that you do that you'd like to share. If you have any questions directly for me, you're welcome to email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. You can get this episode as well as every other one on the website, accrac.com, where you can also join our mailing list in the upper right-hand corner. If you are a fan of the show, please take a minute, even if you've already done it, and go to iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Also, if you're interested in helping support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even just a dollar or two makes a big difference in helping support the cost of the show and keeping it free, which we definitely want to do. All right. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jacqueline Galvin, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.